brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. On the other side of the screen, it all looks so easy. <laughs> That's a quote. Never mind. I said I wasn't going to say where it was from anymore, so okay. that people have to tell me where it's from. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the great video game crash, which really, uh, we should specify, happened in North America. Yes. And we're not talking about the video game crash that we uh, of arcade games. We're yeah. talking specifically of the home market. Yeah. So in order to understand this, we really have to... Uh, to think back to the origin of the video game market, the home market, because um, it doesn't really make sense to talk about the crash until you find out how you got to where you were in the first place, right? True enough. And honestly, the uh, the arcade game market and the home market started roughly the same time. They were growing out of um, you know some work that different computer programmers were doing in the 1960s, yeah. even a little bit earlier, but it's kind of hard to say that it was really becoming a video game of any kind of sort until it got to the late 60s. And the early 70s is when uh, you saw the uh, the first arcade games and first home video games. And I'm talking early 70s, 1970, 1972. Yeah, 1972 is when we saw the very first home video game console for the North American market. And it was the Magnavox Odyssey. Man, what a machine that was. Yeah, the original Odyssey. Now, there were lots and lots of future Odyssey consoles, which I'll chat about briefly. I've got a kind of timeline where I can talk about some of the the consoles that came out and the big years in video game, the home video game market. Uh, But 1972 is probably the biggest year because it's the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, you had the Odyssey, which was designed by an engineer named Ralph Bayer. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he had been working on the prototype for this since the late 60s, like you had mentioned. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. It was um, it was powered by batteries. It was not something that you plugged into a wall at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was analog, not digital. So pretty odd. Also, no sound in the earliest console. There was no... You didn't get audio. You just had a, a, a video output. Uh, and the video output, of course, was your television. You had to hook it up to a TV. It didn't have its own uh, screen or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I have to say about that? What's that? Because there was no sound. Exactly. That's really funny. So in 1973... <laughs> Thank you for the uh, pity there. You're welcome. In 1973, uh, the, the, the Pong coin-operated game was starting to, to make a splash. That's right. So Pong is like the first like major breakthrough arcade game uh, to hit the arcades. Well, not even arcades at that point, but bars and, and things like that. Yeah, Computer Space was the very first coin-operated game. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and, and that was done uh, Nolan Bushnell. <laughs> Those of you who've, uh, long-time listeners or computer game fans probably know who Nolan Bushnell was. But uh, yeah, Pong was actually the second of uh, those games. Yeah. So in 1975, Sears began to sell a Pong home console. I remember that. Now, I I should point out, I should have said this for the Odyssey as well. These home consoles had games hard-coded into them. 
Yeah, we're talking the the chips. Actually, very similar to arcade games. Yes. The uh, the chips inside them would tell you what they would do. So, yeah. I mean, you're not uh, removing a a cartridge. Or, right, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a CD or DVD which hadn't been invented yet. You, you couldn't even switch a chip out. Like with, with some arcade machines, you could switch out ROMs. So a ROM would be what essentially has the game's programming on it. And some arcade consoles, you know, you can switch one ROM out for another and use the same cabinet to house different games. So if one game is not getting a lot of traffic in an arcade, you could swap out the ROM for it and put in a new game. Uh, you couldn't do that with these home consoles. You were stuck with whatever games they were able to put on there. And so a lot of them were variations of Pong. Um, you know, like you might have Pong and then you might have Handball, which is really just a slightly, uh, the, the paddles are slightly smaller and it moves faster. Um, and basketball, in which case everything was, uh, was, um, horizontally oriented rather than vertically oriented, but it was still using the same sort of mechanics as Pong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really just variations on that for a while. So, 75, uh, you get the, uh, Odyssey 100 and 200. Right. Uh, this one was kind of funny in that, um, the the Pong system that Sears put out in 75 had an on-screen scoring system. Mm-hmm. It would keep track of your score. The Magnavox Odyssey 100 and 200 did not have an on-screen scoring system. Nope. It had little plastic markers on the console itself, and you would uh, move your marker up a notch every time you scored a point until whoever reached the you know whatever the limit was that you had decided whether that was the top of the notches or or it will play to whoever gets to five points first. Right. So it was kind of like playing a game of pool. You actually had to physically <laughs> notate what your score was mm-hmm. on the console system. Mm-hmm. Do I get to throw in a plug for my very first? Uh, video game system. Go for it. Because it was a clone of all these. There were lots and lots of Pong clones. Yeah. Uh, but uh, mine, which I still have, is Coleco's Telstar system. That, that came out in 1976. Yes. Lots of them did. The yeah. uh, Fairchild Channel F was out about that same time. Yes, too, which actually, that was one of the first ones to ever use cartridges. <laughs> Yeah, so no. in 76, you got the Odyssey 300, 400, 500, uh, Super Pong, Wonder Wizard, and the Coleco Telstar. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the Telstar was one that had hard-coded games on it, right? Uh, the Telstar, yes, yes. Did. it had three. So this this is before ColecoVision. This is not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an earlier system than that. Yeah, that's the that's the whole thing. When you we're talking about the cartridges, um, we're talking about the ROMs again, which are hard coded inside. But at least these newer machines gave you a a slot from which you could remove a ROM and put a new uh, cartridge in. So then you could play. It was extensible. You could play lots of different games on it. Yeah, so the Fairchild Channel F never really took off, but it was the first one to actually start using a cartridge-based system. Mm -hmm. So the next year, in 77, uh, well, you started seeing things like the Atari Video Pinball Machine, the Atari Stunt Cycle Machine, but uh, also there were a couple more uh, Telstar models that came out and, of course, more Odyssey games. What about the uh, RCA Studio series? Uh, There's that as well. But But in 77... A big one hit. Oh. Probably the big one for the earliest video game market story, which is the Atari VCS 2600. Uh, the video computer system, which the, was actually yes. my very first. The other one was technically my brother's, but you know, I just wanted to plug the Telstar. Yeah, I, I had a 2600 as well. Now, this was, of course, a cartridge-based system again, mm-hmm. so uh, there were no games pre-programmed on the console. Yep, there was a game packaged with the system, though. For <laughs> yes. mine, it was Combat. Yes, it was mine for Combat was mine as well. 
and I, I'll never forget playing Jet versus Airplane. Oh <laughs> like, uh, yes, yeah, fun times. Anyway, yeah, so actually, that, that's uh, going back to. Your, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, interrupt. no, go ahead. Going back to your scoring thing for those of you who've never played an Atari 2600. Um, the games in, about which we were talking, they came with an instruction book. And in most of the instruction books that Atari published, the last couple pages or last page had a, uh, a note field so that you could write down your high scores. Because, of course, at that point, well, and maybe not of course, but at that point, they didn't have any kind of onboard storage. Right. So, you so it didn't remember your high scores. Yeah. If you wanted to, to keep, a, keep track of it, you needed to write it down. Yeah. This is also before... Uh, at this point, the, the video games that you would get in the home market were a lot like the ones in the arcade, in that they were usually, you know, you usually would only play them for a short burst because uh, there was no way to save your progress. Yeah. So there was no point in writing a longer game that would require multiple sessions of play because there was no way to, to save and pick up where you left off. I mean, why would you come back and, and, and just basically leave the machine on for days as you worked your way through a game because there wasn't any way to, to store that? Yeah, there were a lot of people who did that with later systems in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll get to those. But uh, so then let's go ahead to 78. We get some more Telstars because, mm-hmm. you know, every year has to pass with another Telstar game. Uh, that's when the Odyssey Squared came out or Odyssey 2. Yeah. Um, that actually was a computer and it had basic programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also had uh, Coleco Telstar Gemini, which was an Atari 2600 clone yeah. that came out in 78. And the one and only entry from uh, Bally, the Bally Professional Arcade came out in that year. I remember that, too. And uh, do you, you guys, if you listen to our Midway podcast, you know that uh, Bally had purchased Midway. This was the result of Bally and Midway working together to create a... Uh, home arcade system used bitmap graphics uh, did not succeed though so that one you, you know you may not have ever heard of it because it never really went anywhere um, did you want to have anything else to add for 78 before I go to 79 no no go ahead okay 79 you had the Zircon Channel F System 2 wow which was like the Fairchild it's going back and then um, the uh, the Atari 400 yes which also was really kind of a computer. Yeah, it actually had its own keyboard built into that mm-hmm. console. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was meant to be like a, a kid's computer. Like, like my first computer was mm-hmm. the Atari 400. Uh, and it was also cartridge-based. It did have an onboard uh, program, which mm-hmm. was essentially a notepad program. It was kind of like a very, very basic word processor. You should, uh, if, if you're a, an old computer... Uh, if you're a fan of old computers, I didn't want to say old computer fan. Uh, if you're a fan of old computers, you should definitely uh, check out the Atari 400 and, as Jonathan will mention shortly, the 800, which looked very much like it because uh, they were kind of cool. They had a big door in the top of them to uh, remove and insert uh, cartridges from. So you yeah. actually you know, open it up and f- plug it in and then close the door back again. Very kind of old school computer style. And it had a membrane keyboard, which is a real pain in the neck to type on. It's not entirely different from the way the Nintendo had a, a, a door where you would flip open no. and take a cartridge out in a way. No, but um, it kind of reminds me of the old uh, mainframe style things where you had to open it up to actually mess with it rather than, you know, like the Atari VCS, which the slot was just on the top. Right. 
right. where dust could get in it. Yes, where you got into the whole, let's blow into the cartridge before we put it into the machine thing. Uh-huh. Because if dust got in there, if enough dust got in there, it wouldn't work anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, 1980, another big player hits the, the scene, which is Mattel's Intellivision. I believe you had one of these. I did have an Intellivision. Now, I had an Intellivision long after the heyday of Intellivision games had, had passed. Well, people are still playing the games now. Yeah, but there was no way... There were no new games coming out by the right. time I had per- I, I came into possession of one. I, I inherited it essentially from a, a cousin, and um, yeah, it was a it was a really neat game system. It was a I would call it more advanced than the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It still wasn't you know it wouldn't blow you away or anything. No, but um, but the games were a little more sophisticated than the ones you would get on the Twenty Six Hundred. Well, it I think it directly resulted in. Atari's next move, which we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. So 1982, that's when we start seeing some more uh, some more interesting machines. We see the ColecoVision, another big heavy hitter. Absolutely. So Intellivision 2600 and ColecoVision kind of battled it out in the uh, the early 80s to see who would have video game supremacy. Mm-hmm. And Atari had a leg up just because it had been around a little longer than the other two, even though um, the other two had slightly better graphics and and arguably a better controller, depending on whether or not you felt like you got carpal tunnel from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny because at this point in uh, home video gaming, there was sort of this weird crossover between home computers and home video game systems. Mm-hmm. Um, like today, you see stuff like the the Wii and the, the PlayStation series and uh, the the Xbox series, and they can do things that computers do, but uh, some of these systems... You know, um, getting into the ColecoVision, and then Coleco also started a, a system called the Atom, which was supposed to be a computer system, but they were sort of compatible with one another. And you know, the Atari 400 and 800, um, and uh, you know, there there are things like that, and, and having the opportunity to use a keypad because the uh, the ColecoVision and the Intellivision both had a numeric keypad on their. Uh, their controllers, as mm-hmm. did the Atari 5200. And so for a while there, I think the manufacturers were all sort of flirting with this idea that, you know, maybe creating a system that could do all of that stuff. Um, unfortunately, uh, that didn't come out in the way I think that they really intended or, you know, none of them, none of these companies were able to capitalize on it. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the consumers seem to think that these game these Systems were more game systems than computer systems. Like, I, there was more of a division of the two products in the mind of the average consumer, mm-hmm. uh, and it was really hard to bridge that gap. I think because I think what they may have been trying to do, and this is just speculation on my part, is that perhaps they thought if they could embed some computer ability in it, that it might encourage more moms and dads to fork over the cash for a video game system that they could do their taxes on. Yeah. You know, later on, it's like, well, you know, when I can the kid's done, kids I can video game system <laughs> exactly. But, um, but yeah, I mean, also Atari had a leg up on Coleco because Atari was a, uh, if you will, a pure play uh, video game company, whereas Coleco stood for Connecticut Leather Company. They actually had their roots in a, a completely different business. Yeah, the games that you play with leather. I've made this joke. I made this exact yes. same joke, so I'm not going to do it Several times, I believe. Yeah, well, I mean, on the podcast specifically. I make yeah. the joke all the time in the office. Actually, uh, HR will probably talk to me. No, 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 but 
but yeah, I mean, they were they were doing something else for a long time, and then got into uh, to electronics. And uh, Coleco bet hard on the ColecoVision. Right. And getting back to 1982, so ColecoVision comes out. Also, the Atari 5200 comes out. Yep. Which got is one essentially of those. the Atari 400, but without the keyboard. Right. Uh, you had the Vectrex come out. Right. So it looked like a little console, like I a little cabinet that. game. Yeah. Yeah. It actually it actually had its own dedicated screen, so it looked like a miniature arcade machine, like yeah. arcade cabinet. Sorry. Go ahead. And it's also uh, vector-based. And monochromatic. Ah. It was vector-based, so the graphics were better, but it was monochromatic. So uh, what they they shipped the, the game system and the games with overlays. Nice. You put an overlay on the screen, and that would simulate color. Very nice. Yeah. Groovy. Uh, also, the Emerson Arcadia 2001 came out in 1982, as well as the Intellivision 2. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna pause the timeline there at 1982 because now we're getting up to the point where the actual crash began to take place. And uh, and there are a lot of different reasons for the crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them we've already established just by doing the timeline. There were lots and lots of competing video game systems out there. Yeah, no, we've, we've basically been going from 1972 uh, up through the mid 80s, early 80s, early I guess, 80s, yeah. about 83, 84, 85. We're sort of getting into this thing. And um, that's the whole thing. We're in the third generation of consoles in, you know, Twelve years. years, ten years, really. I mean, because because if you look at well, the crash, yeah, yeah. the crash is pretty much eighty three. So you think of that as the eleventh year. So home video game market had ten amazing years, but as you were pointing out, three generations within ten years gets, especially for a new kind of product, is hard for consumers to swallow. Yep. I mean, it's it, at that time it was very difficult to think. I need to. I'm going to make a two hundred dollar or more investment. Two hundred dollars in those do- those years dollars is which more than what you would spend today. So you know, you look at an arcade or a video game console as it comes out today, and you're thinking, wow, five hundred dollars that's a lot of money. Well, if you look at the the consoles that first came out in the seventies, uh, they were priced at around two hundred dollars, including the twenty six hundred. Um, when adjusted for inflation, they might be the same or more than what you. Will pay for a and like a brand new console in today's market. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm I'm trying to look that up as we speak. But okay. while while the uh, computer is percolating, since we have weird Wi-Fi in this room, yeah, um, yeah, and, and something else too. I mean, at this point, the home video game industry was just huge, and other people were trying to get into it. Uh, a little company uh, starting up, you may have heard of, uh, Activision. Was fighting desperately to get on the the Atari twenty six hundred. Yeah, let's talk about this. This is where you can lay a lot of the blame for the arc video game crash uh, on Atari's shoulders. Uh, oh yeah, and here's here's what it boils down to. Ultimately, is credit. Uh, video game developers wanted to start getting credit for their work. They were designing these games, and they wanted to be able to have their names attached to the games that they were building. Atari, meanwhile, wasn't too keen on that idea. They didn't see any need to do that. They, they wanted the games to look more like they all essentially were you know, just from Atari. They didn't want to, to differentiate that at all. Yeah. And uh, as a result, that, that did – I would say that ultimately for, is the basis of what formed Activision – yeah, it was, it was game developers who wanted to be able to create games that they would get credit for. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't mm-hmm. remain anonymous. Um, by the way, 
Yeah. Uh, according to Wolfram Alpha, at an average rate of inflation of 2.91% per year, $200 in 1983 would be approximately $434.34. So that's 1983. And remember that the Atari 2600 came out in the late 70s. So yeah, we're talking about the, the early video game systems cost then uh, in purchasing power, essentially what they cost today. Yep. And uh, Wolfram Alpha was working on that, too. 1977, the debut of the, the two, uh, $2,600. Uh, $200 at an average rate of inflation of 3.93% per year is $713.76. So actually more expensive than either the PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360 when they debuted. Yes, in, in relative terms. Relative anyway. terms, yes. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there was a – we talked about, I think, Warren Robinette – in an earlier podcast. Probably. He, he uh, was one of the, if, I think he was the developer behind the Atari 2600 game Adventure. And one of the big things to do uh, back when that game was released was to find what was called a microdot, which is not a microdot in the classic sense, um, in the spy terms, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a microdot, there was a little glowing dot, a couple pixels. I'm not sure exactly how big it was in terms of pickles. Pixel, pickles. Pickles. It was about three gherkins wide. Oh, man. Uh, anyway. I'm so hungry. I know, I know. It's right before lunchtime. Uh, so anyway, if you could find this dot, you could take your character, which was a square, yeah. through a wall that normally you wouldn't be able to go through. It, it was just basically cordoning off part of the game. Yes, this was in our Easter eggs podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you could see the name of the designer, Warren Robinette. And because uh, otherwise you never would have seen it at all. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't listed down. There weren't credits like like you see when you finish one of these uh, one of the newer video games. You get a whole listing of all the animators and the story developers and the storyboarders and right. everybody else who's worked on the game. And it wasn't just a question of credit, although that was definitely important. It was big. It was also royalties. Yeah, because I mean, without being credited for their work, these developers weren't going to be able to claim royalties on any sales. And uh, that's the that's probably the. It's hard for me to say because I wasn't there, but I would guess that that was the main reason why Atari resisted this whole credit thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pay out royalties to the developers, and um, so it boils down to money. So that ended up uh, make, having uh, these these developers found Activision, mm-hmm. where they're developing their own game company. Uh, there's a there was essentially a, a big restraining order that Atari put on on other game developers saying you can't develop games for our proprietary console, but it never panned out. So that kind of opened the doors for third-party developers. Yep, and that allowed all sorts of games to float on the market. Now, uh, Activision had some of the... Uh, I, I liked them a lot. I mean, I played Laser Blast for hours and hours Didn't and hours. did Activision do Pitfall? Activision did do that Pitfall. That is like... And Mega Mania? Pitfall, I, when I think of great home video games, especially for the Atari, Pitfall has got to be in the top ten. I mean, it was a, a wonderful, amazing game, and uh, I loved it. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, Activision put out some really good games. Now, the problem was not all third-party developers put out games of the quality that Activision was creating. And because those floodgates had opened where now any third-party developer could build a an Atari 2600 game and sell it, you know, they didn't have to go through Atari to sell it. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, they had to get their own distributor or whatever, but they didn't have to ship stuff to Atari. Mm-hmm. Uh, it meant that anyone who had some programming skill could build um, an Atari game, and that led to some pretty crappy games. 
Well, you know, there were some pretty good developers. Oh, no, there were some great developers, but there were some really bad ones. <laughs> okay, so we're going to let's talk about two games that helped perpetuate this crash. So we've already established that part of the problem is that there were a lot of game systems on the market, so consumers had way too much uh choice in that sense. It was really hard for any one console to to do well, apart from like the three big ones, ColecoVision and Television and Atari 2600. Yeah. Um, so that was one problem. Uh, the other problems were things like the uh, the fact that the, the systems were so expensive, so people didn't want to upgrade every few years because they put in such a huge investment already. And then we have the problem of the, the, the flood of games hitting the market all at once. Uh, two games in particular really hurt Atari specifically, and then by extension, the rest of the video game market. Are you going to to are these uh, Atari specific games? One of them is Pac Man. Yeah, the adaptation of Pac Man, which was such a huge hit in the arcade, was an enormous disappointment when it was brought to the twenty six hundred. Mm-hmm. The problem was that the timeline to develop the game was very, very short. Atari was putting pressure on the developers to get it ready by the holiday season that year. Mm-hmm. I think this was nineteen eighty one, in fact. And uh, so, in, uh, the developers have to try and build this game in uh, a fraction of the time they would have used to put it together. So when it launches, it looks hardly anything at all like the Pac-Man of the arcade games. I mean, the basic concept is the same, and that's it. The graphics were terrible, the sound effects, everything was was dreadful. Mm-hmm. And so people really got turned off by that game. The next year, that's when the granddaddy of all terrible arcade, of home video games uh, came out. And it's one that I've talked about multiple times in this podcast, and I'm going to do it again. It was E.T. And you know, I have to say... Not everyone agrees with you that E.T. was the worst game for the Atari 2600. No, but not everyone is as smart as I am. <laughs> no, that's the, that's the whole problem. I mean, I remember even when the Atari 2600 was very popular, going into, for example, drugstores and seeing... Huge, you know how you go in the. Uh, I imagine most of our listeners probably play some kind of video game, and if you've ever been in one of the used video store, video game stores, you see those big baskets, and it's like, oh, these are five bucks, and there'll be games from five or six years ago. I mean, uh, consoles like the PlayStation Two that are still en- enjoying quite a bit of success. Yeah, you know, still selling new consoles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically they're going, oh, well, you know what? We got thirty of these things. Here, take you know twenty five of them. We're going to stick them in the bin, sell them for five bucks or seven bucks or something like that. The twenty six hundred was having that same thing. Only a lot of these were it was like straight to video, if you will. A lot of them were going straight into those bins of games that were just reprehensible. Yeah. So you've got you've got a flood of really bad games. You've got expensive hardware that keeps needing to be upgraded. Uh, you've got too many choices on the market. Uh, it, it was just a recipe for disaster. And around 1983 in North America, that's when it all came crashing down. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, what also helped was the rise of the personal computer. Yeah. Uh, and personal computers were starting to to have their own set of games that were, in a way, more sophisticated than the home video games. They were different. You know, they didn't. They weren't. They didn't have the same kind of Twitch-based gameplay that a lot of the the home video games did. Mm-hmm. But they allowed you to do more with those games. And once you were able to do things like save games, that really started to change things. So 
the home video game market really started to to crash in on itself. It imploded to the point where there are famous stories about companies having to dispose of enormous uh, inventories of games, including ET. Which, if you've heard the tales, where did where did a lot of those ET cartridges end up? Those cartridges ended up in a public landfill. In I believe it's Arizona. I actually found the story yeah. on Snopes. I wanted to find out if it was actually true or if it was a myth. Myth. I'm sorry. It's in New Mexico. Oh, it was New Mexico. I thought yes. it was Arizona. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Alamogordo, New Mexico. In late September 1983, according to Snopes, um, Atari took E.T. and Pac-Man and dumped them in a city landfill, uh, rolled over them with steamrollers so you couldn't play them. Right. Not Thank that they God. were that playable before. Yeah. And uh, covered them with cement. Yeah, it's I, it's interesting to note that they treated that as if it were toxic waste. Well, considering it kind of was. Considering the amount of lead in them? Yeah, I'm talking about in a more like philosophical <laughs> standpoint. Um, but yes, but yeah. also that. Uh, so yeah, anyway, the this is all the stuff that kind of together led to that huge crash. And in America, it lasted for about two years. It wouldn't be until the, the debut of the Nintendo Entertainment System in America, which was in 1985, mm-hmm. before the home video game market started to recover. So for two years, home video game market was pretty much dead. Uh, you could you could pick up uh, titles for a fraction of what they once went for as people were trying to stores were trying to get rid of them because no one was making new ones. They just needed to get this stuff out of inventory. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, for about two years, there was no way of getting like a new system or new games. And uh, we're going to have to probably cut it off here, but I think it might be fun in the future. We'll, we'll probably give it some time. But to revisit this and talk about how Nintendo helped usher in a new era of home video game systems and, and what it took to bring home video game systems back from the dead. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Nintendo had a very specific way of doing things that that really changed the whole paradigm of how video game uh, consoles were marketed and uh, how how third-party development was uh, handled. And uh, we'll get into that in a future podcast. I do think it's ironic. I'd like to mention, you know how I was talking about how uh, Atari had an advantage over Coleco because they actually were a video game company. Well, Nintendo wasn't exactly a video game company when it started either. It's a playing card company. Yes. Still, still game related. Yes, indeed. Whereas leather, I have to leave it off there. Stop it. All right, so I guess it's time for us to wrap this up in leather, and we will talk to you guys again soon. Remember, you can email us. Our address is textup at howstuffworks.com. Chris and I will chat with you again once Chris is done crying. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?